Thanks for all those who called Elaine um, and the kids. Many checked in. Some helped get uh, one kid from one place to the next. And I don't know what it would be like without a church family. Uh, we have friends who don't have, uh, I'm thinking of right now, who don't have a church home. And they're lonely and they're without any sort of support or help. They're actually um, fairly new to the area. So thank you. Your helpfulness allowed me to go and do my job well. I feel as though I might need to give a little context or reasoning for why I'm up here in front of you tonight and not assume that all or even most uh, know what I was just talking about or even who I am. So, so briefly, and I promise briefly, uh, let me give you a little introduction. My name is Will Savell, a longtime Gracie Van member, used to work on staff here until about 2011, probably had some of your children in the youth ministry. Now I run a ministry called the Grace Institute, uh, a ministry supported by this church. It's a ministry that helps pastors and church leaders in under-resourced areas of the world know the Bible and theology. We try to help train pastors to lead their congregations well. Uh, for the past five or so years, our primary audiences have been those pastors and leaders in Latin America, uh, mainly Cuba, Nicaragua, Colombia, Argentina, places like that. Recently, we brought on a director of Latin American Initiatives, He's done really well at reaching even more people in that context, and with him on board, it's allowed me to focus more of my attention on another part of the world, which is East Africa. It was about four years ago when I was introduced to the East African context. It was in Kenya that I met a young man from Uganda named Patrick. <laughs> Some of you know Patrick from Facebook. Um, he's the Ugandan who runs the Good Shepherd Foundation, and that consists of our father's school, which is a primary school, which consists of about 250 uh, students, uh, half of them being orphan children, uh, a large majority of the other ones being children at risk. Uh, some have parents. Um, he has a ministry to the children, their families, and the elderly of that community, and he is also connected to some pastors that are within a couple of the pastor networks around um, the country. And he told me years ago, it's probably four years ago now, he told me years ago, we probably won't ever have big groups like that of Cuba. I see it on Facebook, and we probably won't ever have big groups like that, but we want to learn the Bible. Can you help? I mean, what do you say to that, right? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, yes, we can. We can try. So for the first two visits, we did what they asked for, trying to be culturally sensitive, we go in and try to be just the guest and do what they wanted. Um, a Bible teaching from a stage, a worn-out speaker and a bad microphone, uh, roosters are crowing and walking through the audience, and children are nursing on their mothers, which is a distraction for someone who's not used to seeing that. It was hot and terrible. The first visit, I tried to set them up with Bible curriculum for ongoing study. Uh, this was in an area without electricity, which made it a little bit difficult. Then I realized that most of them didn't even have Bibles in their own native language, so they weren't even, I don't know what they were even reading. So the second visit was a teaching, but it was also Bible distribution, Bibles in their own language. The third time, I tried something very different for that context. I removed the pastors from, uh, and the leaders from their normal environments. They came to a hotel-ish, a hotel for a teaching but it was there that they had to do group work and really interact with the materials that were being taught. Uh, they were learning how to study the Bible. They were learning that the Bible was their authority. That was the main point. The Bible is your authority, not 
the bishop who you saw on TV. The Bible's your authority. It's very simple for this audience right here, but it's a difficult context, uh, concept in that context. Over this past year, they've been regularly meeting in order to study the Bible together and do their best to stay within biblical context and reasoning. Um, them studying curriculum is a, a little difficult because there's nothing in their language outside of the Bible. Um, but they are studying the Bible, and they're trying to, like I said, keep in context and go a bit deeper in their understanding. So it was around mid-2017 where I felt confident in the ongoing work in Latin America. And so I had to consider a good effort uh, in East Africa and maybe that side of the world in general. And after talking to Elaine, um, I made plans with Patrick to visit Uganda for almost a month from early January to early February. I just returned. Uh, there were four reasons for the trip, or, or let's say this, there were four parts to the trip with many, many reasons. One of the main reasons for all of it was the development of Patrick, who you're going to meet next month. He'll be here. He'll be the Ugandan walking around with me. Um, and so please feel free to say hey to him. Um, so what I did early January, I flew down into Uganda to get Patrick. And then he and I went up to Dubai for just a couple of days. Part one was a couple of days in Dubai in order to meet a new friend from Pakistan. Um, he's a man who's older than Patrick, but in a very similar ministry context. He has a school. He has a girl's home for some young lady who has been brought, who have been brought out of the sex slave industry. Um, but he also has pastors that he supports and he tries to train as well. And together, over the past probably six, eight months, we've been trying to get some of the third millennium material into the Urdu language which is a, a arduous task. Um, we had to have a necessary uh, face-to-face meeting. I provided him with some technological help and some, some consultation, and I think he's going to be a good ministry partner in the coming years. Uh, one interesting fact about him, he lives like minutes, literally minutes walking distance from where Osama bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad. So um, he's there, and there's a lot of interesting stories that I was asking him about that. Um, anyways, we returned uh, from Dubai and a few days later took off to a place outside of Eldoret, Kenya. Now, that's over on the west side of the country where Obama's grandmother lives, um, pretty close to it. And we met with a group of pastors um, from African Inland Church. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a large denomination there in Kenya. Uh, they were interested in ongoing education for their church network. Now, fast forwarding. Fast forwarding, the last eight or so days of the trip uh, of the month consisted of a, pastor, a couple of pastor's conferences in rural Uganda with the groups that I've been forming relationships with. Uh, now, I'm promised that I'm not trying to patronize anyone in this room. I'm only doing this because I've had many who have come up to me and asked me where Uganda is. They, they, know, they know it's in Africa. I had somebody tonight come to me and say, where's Uganda? I said, just hold on. I'll tell you. I'll show you a map. Um, they know it's in Africa, but they can't find it. So on the left, Uganda is that country west of Kenya, south of Sudan. Uh, you heard of Idi Amin, uh, people like that. It was, that's where it, Joseph Kony years back. Um, anyways, that's where he was. And the right picture is the country of Uganda, and those red dots is where um, we worked. Now, that's Kampala, the main city. We worked in a place called Luero, and Patrick's school is in a place called Kasambia, 
about th three hours west, about 30-minute drive on a dirt road um, from a place called Mubende. Anyways, that's where we were working. Back to part four, the last eight days of the trip. We had some visitors. Greg Strong, he came over to be a part of the trip. Um, he uh, Initially, he was just going to observe. Uh, that was the plan, right, Greg? Just observe. And he told me that he was looking for what he said was perspective, life perspective. Um, but the doors were opened for him to serve some of the, uh, at the school where not only did he build desks for the students who just started February 4th, um, but he also taught a young man how to build desks. So at the very end of it, this man, his name um, is Huntington. Uh, he did it all by himself. It was really a good picture of discipleship. Um, by the time they were on that last desk, Greg sat there. And I have a picture. I didn't find it today. But Greg's just sitting there watching, watching as he um, built these desks. And uh, you'll have to ask Greg at another time whether or not he received perspective. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm not saying there weren't times that a really organized uh, man like Greg wasn't uh, frustrated. Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, I thought that was a good picture. He really wasn't mad at that picture. That was just, and look at all those kids just watching. watching. <laughs> I love it. Anyways, uh, Josh Warren also arrived. Josh came onto the Grace Institute staff in July as the director of curriculum. And since that time, he's worked within that capacity. Um, but it's also been important for him to meet and see all of our ministries partner, ministry partners and also the context, see the context as sort of training. Um, so this was the last ministry partner to meet and his last context to experience to get a full understanding of the ministry. Uh, and his function... Uh, on this trip was to teach these pastors a biblical overview to show them how the Bible is one story and it fits together from creation to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, he taught them well. Uh, they were just blown away with the teachings. I mean, this is a group of people who use the Bible to sort of pull something out and use it for what they're trying to show or prove. So to see the Bible as a, as a full story about God's glory is just, um, it was amazing. Uh, he also, I think, received perspective, especially when they had a quest question and answer period of time um, on the subject of polygamy, um, and, and not because it's just a fun theoretical subject found in the Old Testament, it's because some of them had multiple wives before they were Christians. And so um, I took a picture of Josh, I said, okay, I'm going to say one word, I need to know your expression, polygamy, and that's, <laughs> he was like, oh, and, um, but he did a great job with that. You'll also have to ask Josh, Josh about his perspective. So parts one, two, and four were great, but it was part three that made this trip specifically different for me than what I normally do. Part three, I think, is the reason Dr. Young wrote and asked me to speak tonight. His email consisted of wanting me to share what I learned. I mean, I just got back, so that's going to be a little bit difficult um, to just tell you everything that I learned. But, you know, Dr. Young, he wanted me to share what I learned. Um, for me, um, I'm not certain, though, that you really learn uh, from going to a place like that to do a conference. I think you gain valuable perspective, uh, perspective, perspective about probably yourself more than anything else. But meeting with a ministry for a few days or, or having, a past, having a bunch of pastors come together for a conference for a week can't teach you very much about who you're trying to serve. 
parts one, two, and four don't give you a picture of long-term reality. I met with the Pakistani in Dubai. I didn't want to go to Pakistan, so we went to Dubai, you know, and next to about 15 McLarens and the Burj Khalifa. It was, it was kind of nice. I don't understand his context just because I met a Pakistani in a hotel, right? Uh, I met the Kenyans at a conference center where we had all day to meet and food was prepared for us. I was able one night to hike up the mountain in, in the dark to this house for a small group that met really late at night. And that's about as close as I got to real life there. Um, yeah, I had Josh and Greg in a hotel. Our, our conferences were at another hotel. And it was a designated time for teachings and celebration. Each conference, um, food was provided uh, that our ministry paid for. Look at that plate of food that guy has. Now, that's not normal, y'all. I mean, usually he'll eat uh, some plantains every day. And they just, it's just starch and carbs, and it's just piled on a plate, and it's just plate after plate, because they literally don't know where their next meal is coming from. Meat, meat is purchased, beef, lamb, or, or goat, um, which is a, a big treat. Everyone at those conferences, um, they put their best foot forward in order to be gracious hosts and shed the best light on not only themselves, but their pastor's network and also their country. Uh, we ought to get that. We're good Southerners. We do the same thing. We host well. Uh, so at conferences or consultations, we're always the guests. And, and this is why part three was so important for me and I think the ministry in general. I arranged with Patrick before I left uh, here. Uh, I arranged for a longer stay, and he knew what it was for. The idea was that if we are focused on rural East Africa, specifically Uganda right now, I needed a better and a more realistic understanding. I needed to learn about life. And to do this, I couldn't be seen or treated as such a visitor. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll never be nothing more than a, a visitor, okay? I mean, it's, it's impossible. Uh, if you look at me compared to them, I'm always going to be a visitor, and I can't change that fact. But I could attempt, with their help and cooperation, to live a little while in their context and try to understand uh, their realities of their lives. And, and the point of this would be to help me know how to better serve them down the road as their Bible teacher. So part three for me was a research project. I wanted to research these pastors' normal lives, their environments, what benefits and what detracts from their learning processes, what they value and how they function based on those values, questions like that, questions that would present a more accurate view of reality. Uh, now, listen, I've learned a, a few things over the, the past years doing what I do. Um, it's easy to get a good picture for a newsletter, you know? It's easy to take a picture like that. And little do you know, that was, that's right next door to the school, and he's one of my pastor's kids. And that could be on any, in any National Geographic book, right? It's easy to do that and put it on a newsletter and, 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 and circulate that around Facebook, things like that, and and let everybody know, oh, this is a great trip, and the kids are, are loving us. It's not easy to recognize the real paradigm that you're working in. Accept those realities, and then put your hand to the task within that real paradigm. One, is hard. is really hard. And two, many of 
your supporters won't understand it. And three, it's just easier and cleaner to write out a good strategy from what you want the reality to be, what you can actually do. But if we're going into an area, right, if we're going into the area, we have to go in with our eyes open to the truth, even if that truth is hard to swallow. And finding more of the truth was the primary goal of part three of my trip. This part consisted of me staying with Patrick and his family, living in a place called Nansana, a suburb of Kampala. I ate each meal with them. I went to their church. I, it consisted of normal, everyday life. And if it wasn't Nansana, it was Kansabia, I'm sorry, Kasambia, the village where the school is located. It's about three hours away from Kampala. And again, I ate with them and lived life. And I tried to do some of the normal things that everybody does. For example, uh, <laughs> it was harvest time <clears throat> for maize. Maize is corn, but um, its stalks and its husks are, are dry. And I say that because that's very hard on the hands. And <laughs> when it's harvest time, everyone participates. Either you get a little money or it's like all hands on decks because you're, uh, your family owns a little plot of land and they have some maize to, to harvest. Uh, is similar to Old South during harvest time. Uh, everybody's participating. So I had a question. What's it like to need to work in the fields all day, but also be <laughs> expected to go and learn a theology or a pastor or congregation, right? It's because for me, for me, I was afforded the opportunity to receive my theological training inside the walls of this church. It was part of my job, and I was paid for it. Uh, I was able to come to my office every morning and study and take those studies and teach. Uh, the most I would have to do in the form of manual labor was during my youth ministry days when I had to set up for an event, maybe move a speaker from one side of the room to the other. So, you know, I go out to the field, and I begin harvesting maize, and I worked all day just like everybody else did. And guys, I can tell you with certainty that I didn't feel like studying when I was finished. Another activity that I did was uh, I collected water, because that's what you do. Um, where we are, there's no water. There's no, like, spigots or faucets that you can turn on. Um, while I was out there, we, while I was out there, we bathed and cooked from um, the source on the, on the left here. We bathed from this source, and we cooked our, our rice and our food from that. Um, now, when Josh and Greg came, we hiked out about a half mile down the road to the Muslims. Um, the Muslims have this borehole, um, meaning that they have a hole down into the aquifer, and you can pump the water. Um, and they have it for everyone's use, but you have to listen to the imam's teachings. It's an evangelistic tool for the Muslim um, church there. It was a good idea. Um, my experience was that the imam really broke up fights more than he was teaching anybody because everybody wanted their water. Uh, because getting water becomes a big deal when the entire village is trying to use that one well for the aquifer's water. Uh, the line literally was hours long. There was 27 jugs in front of ours, and the imam was gracious enough to allow us to go first because we got there at 6.30 at night, and they said it would have taken us to about 1 in the morning to get our four jugs of water. Um, we only got two jugs. Uh, everyone was frustrated. And um, when you get to the pump, you have to do just that. You have to pump. And I was sore that night, and I was sore the very next day. It's hard work. 
Um, considering the idea of studying the Bible and theology <laughs> that night, it just wasn't going to happen. So just living in that area, hard and tiring work came with the territory. And for someone like me who's not used to hard manual labor, it's, it was really difficult. And it's really depressing when the, when the nine-year-old girl is skipping down the road with the 30-pound the bottle jug of water on her head, you know, <laughs> I'm dragging. <laughs> Ask the eight-year-old boy, can you help me out, please? Uh, I'm whooped. <laughs> but when it comes to water and harvest time, that has made me think of the first of the two issues that uh, really dictate reality there. Um, you know, that was the goal. I wanted to understand reality. I wanted to know real-life issues that affected them in their pursuit of theological training. Um, and so far, I can't get two issues off my mind. The first issue is poverty, and the second issue is the prosperity gospel. I mean, Jimmy asked me to come up here and just tell you a few of my thoughts. Um, and so th- th- these are it, um, poverty and the prosperity gospel. And I've come to the opinion that if a ministry like the Grace Institute is not willing to recognize these two things as the real paradigm from which the pastors and the church leaders live, it's going to be nearly impossible to do effective and long-term ministry. Now, to begin with poverty, I've been thinking about poverty a lot lately, Um, ever since I got home last Monday night, and before then, obviously, while I was on the trip, I had a lot of time to think, but uh, every time I laid my head down to rest or I take a shower, um, my mind is turned toward poverty. And poverty in our context looks a lot different than it does where we were serving in Uganda. I mean, in Uganda, I mean, right behind that house is the school. Um, uh, This is Greg um, and Patrick buying meat. This is the meat market. This is like the place they sold beef uh, and he knew that we preferred beef over goat. Um, so anyways, this is, and they, they just killed this thing, killed that slab of beef like four more times on that piece of wood right there and just hack it up with the machete. Um, but that's the town of Kasambia right there behind them. Uh, and this is right outside of Kasambia, no electricity on the road right by the school. Um, so poverty looks a little bit different than it does in Memphis, um, I think. Um, I've lived in Memphis a long time, and I, I don't see too much of that. Um, now, Susie Young and I were talking over, I guess, since Sunday, and um, she was talking to me the other day about poverty, and she works in some areas of Memphis that are considered poor. And she referred, she referenced um, this philosophy, this thing, this study that some of you might be familiar with. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. So I've been reading through that uh, some, and if you're interested, just Google the word Maslow, M-A-S-L-O-W, and it's going to take you to this idea. And I won't go into everything about it that I've read because I'm still trying to get my thoughts wrapped around it. Um, But one thing was apparent on his pyramid that he makes, this this guy makes, um, on his Hierarchy of Needs. The very bottom of the pyramid are those with physiological needs. Uh, physiological needs has to do with one's basic needs, water, food, sleep, clothing, shelter, etc. Now, the top of the pyramid, the smaller portion, were those with self-actualization needs. Uh, these would have to do with one's 
realizing your full potential. Uh, it has a lot to do with thinking and learning and, and decision-making, those sorts of things. Now, I can't speak, speak too much of the poverty in Memphis and many other places, but where I work in Uganda, I can say with certainty that most everyone is living at the bottom of the pyramid. Water and food and basic health care and those other basic needs are really unknown to them. They're really uncertain all the time. Patrick's sister, Mary, is a nurse that we work with. She goes to the village and tries to help some of these, these children and pastors and leaders and people. And our pastors and leaders, they have children. I try to put it in perspective for they They have children. And these children at times have malaria. But they don't have the money for medication. And at other times, they have stomach worms. And at other times, they have jiggers, which are real. And you can Google it, but not tonight over dinner. I've learned from experience what they are. They're terrible. Um, They live within the paradigm of having uh, basic physiological needs unmet. And what Maslow and other people that I've been reading and just my own observation has taught me is that those with these needs are very stressed and they're very anxious people, almost in a crippling sort of way. Now, please don't confuse this type of anxiety that I'm talking about with me being anxious that my son isn't on the soccer team that he wants to be or um, my daughter isn't excelling in Latin like, like I would like her to. They're on a different scale. From what studies have shown, people with these sorts of needs have anxiety to the point of not being able to think well or make good decisions or learn. So the Grace Institute, we want to go in and we want to set up third millennium courses. We want to do conferences where they're expected to think critically about Scripture. Uh, We want them to read the entire Gospel of John in one setting and retain enough information to have thrilling conversation. We want people who live with real physiological needs to function as those in the top of the pyramid, people like you and me. Those who can think critically and analyze and judge and debate. All this to say, abject poverty is real. And that is the paradigm. I mean, it's not just a thought or a theory. That is the paradigm. And if we refuse to see it that way, it's going to be difficult to minister in that context. We all all like clean edges, especially when it comes to ministry. We love good and tangible return on investment. We all like it. The poverty issue makes everything harder and messier because it has crept into every single part of life, even biblical education. We like to separate that over here, like, well, just go study. I mean, you're not doing anything all day. Go study. Yeah? The poverty issue has crept into every single part of it, and we have to realize that. The next reality um, I confronted was the prosperity gospel. Um, That's a phrase that we hear a lot, right? And for those unfamiliar with the term, this is what it is. Prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, or the gospel of success, is a Christian religious doctrine uh, that financial blessing is the will of God for Christians, and that faith, positive speech, and donations to Christian ministries will increase one's 
material wealth, in short. We have people in the U.S. who teach this doctrine. Uh, usually they're the ones with the big mansions or the, or the airplanes and will tell their people that they need to um, exercise their faith in order to get um, their own mansion or, or airplane or maybe even sow a seed into their ministry so that that seed can be pressed down, shaken together, and, and running over. Uh, it's a works-based almost voodoo-like teaching that uses Jesus as a means to attaining something more or attaining a certain level in this life. This sort of teaching attracts two types of people, the haves and the have-nots. The haves are those who are in favor with God, those with the faith, those who are the pastors or those who are surrounding the pastors, but that's the minority The majority are the have-nots. Those are on the lower level of the pyramid who many need the basic needs. Now, prosperity theology exists in the United States, and it affects a lot of people, and I believe it affects a lot of people negatively, but not everyone. I mean, I would dare to say that you are influenced by prosperity theology. Other churches that we're friends with, some around this area, even from other denominations, aren't influenced by this teaching. I mean, we see the danger in it. We'll even name some names, and we'll talk about how dangerous it is. And I think we would even say that the teaching isn't Christian. But I don't think anyone in this room is concerned that Dr. Young is studying Kenneth Copeland on his way back from India. I don't think anybody's worried about that. Let's get back to Uganda, though. The majority of all people including pastors and church leaders, have been influenced by the prosperity gospel. It is as prevalent as Coca-Cola, and I'm not exaggerating. And it informs their interpretation of Scripture. Scripture doesn't inform their ideas on health and prosperity. This teaching informs their understanding of God's Word. And this damnable theology comes out in every single conversation to the point where you're just exhausted with it. You know, the stats say that Uganda is 80% Christian. Um, I'm really tired of statisticians um, and websites that say who and who's not Christian. Um, But if you go to the the people that everybody uses, um, 80% Christian, Uganda. And they do talk a lot about Jesus. They talk a ton about Jesus. If you meet someone on the street, it's even appropriate to say, praise Jesus, and then they say, amen, or they say, praise Jesus, or praise God, and you say, amen. Um, Jesus is in many, many conversations. Jesus, 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 prosperity gospel, Jesus. You know, this Wednesday night crowd, this one in here, should know Galatians, right? Right? Do you remember chapter one when Paul addressed those who were adding circumcision to Jesus? I believe that the extreme poverty has made the people in Uganda easy targets for the prosperity gospel. It's pragmatic. It seems hopeful for today. And look, I understand why they would need hope. They're starving. They're sick and poor. So I get it. It's pragmatic. And when it doesn't work, sometimes they go to the witch doctor on the street. 
but it's pragmatic and it's there. It's everywhere, all over the place. So the poverty, so poverty and the prosperity gospel, <laughs> these are the two big lessons learned among many. Um, <laughs> these are the two realities that have been that have to be considered and taken seriously as the work continues. Um, now, a logical question that you might have <laughs> tonight is, well, what are you going to do about it, Will? Uh, and are you just giving us problems without solutions? <laughs> kind of. Uh, tonight, I am. Jimmy asked me to talk tonight. He didn't ask me to talk uh, two months from now. He asked me to talk right when I got back. Um, and look, the typical approach, the typical approach would be for me to stand in front of you, briefly introduce these realities, kind of like, let's not talk about them for real. Let's just kind of briefly introduce them. I'm going to treat you like children that don't know anything about missions and, and everything. And I'm going to briefly introduce to you about these, these things. And then I'm going to give you about a seven-step action plan on, that I quickly jotted down two days ago to, in order to fix this and to, to tackle these issues that have been in existence for a long time just not that easy. That's not that easy, and that's not a good approach. It's not an honest approach. And I think you guys are mature people. You can handle an honest approach, an honest conversation about real issues going on in the world so we can think about how to approach them honestly and in the right way. Now, for me and for the Grace Institute, we're committed to this work. We are, we are all in. We're committed to it. We're committed to think through how to best introduce and to teach the real gospel of Jesus Christ to the areas that have been infested with not only parasites, but horrible, damnable theology. We're committed. Hey, we're committed. I'm sorry. We're committed to those men and women right there. Um, those men and women, Emmanuel and Grace and Joffrey and Joshua, we're committed to those, those people. We're committed to Grace's little girl sitting in her lap for her children and their grandchildren. You know, I see this as a long game. I'm not sure if these pastors right there, I'm not sure if they'll ever be the theological students that I would like them to be but maybe their children and their grandchildren, maybe generationally, future generations will begin to see the beauty in Jesus Christ and in him alone. For me, we will continue to teach without words of flattery. I was, um, I was reading Thessalonians and how Paul uh, spoke to the Thessalonians, and he said, we came to you without words of flattery, without the pretext of greed. So we're going to continue to talk to them without words of flattery, Josh even looked at me one time and says, I can't believe you said that to them in that way. But he goes, I guess you do know them. And it's when they're talking prosperity nonsense and you just say, no, that is not the word of God. And we have to get back to that. And I'm sorry if your feelings are hurt, but you're wrong. And here's why. So without words of flattery, we will try to learn how to do this well, though, within a context of poverty and that prosperity theology. And for you, as my church family and as the, a church who supports the ministry of the Grace Institute, 
ask for you to continue to pray for us as we approach an area of the world that is so different from ours. Don't forget us. And don't forget them just because it seems overwhelming. Please pray. And come be a part and get your own perspective, uh, just as Greg did. And who knows, maybe the Lord will use you in some capacity to, to figure this thing out and to minister well to other nations. Until we can talk again, which I hope is sooner than, than later, let's pray for that part of the world, um, that they will be convicted through the power of the Holy Spirit of what is good and right and true. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you tonight humbly, knowing that you are the God of all creation and that uh, you have seen fit um, to create image bearers. And even though fallen, to redeem um, many of your image bearers, to take part in kingdom work and kingdom expansion. You're doing a work not only here, not only at this church and around the city of Memphis and around the United States, but you're doing it in the rest of the world. And um, that can be seen. Uh, Father, some of the parts of the world are very different than ours. And because they're different, it just brings a lot of uh, questions and confusion, and it's hard. Um, but you told us to make disciples of all nations. You told us to go and to share your good news, good news of redemption, your good news that Jesus is enough, Jesus is sufficient. Um, you told us to go share that with um, the world. And that's what we want to do. Even in a hard context, even in, uh, in places like Uganda, where, where many of the areas there are um, affected so badly with poverty and this prosperity gospel. Lord, you have, you have some there who want to know who you are. I mean, they've listened to others for many, many years, and they have so much uh, theological baggage that um, they're trying to work through, but they do want to follow you. They do want to learn your word. They do want to know um, your son and be conformed more and more to his image. And so, Father, I would ask that you would grant that, grant that through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, they would fall under conviction uh, to follow you and you alone, that they would see your word as authoritative and sufficient for um, all teaching and reproof and rebuke and uh, for every good work that you've called them to. Father, do a work in them. Please do a work in that area of the world. As you do a work in our area of the world, we don't have it all figured out. Um, we take things for granted. Um, our stuff gets in our way. Uh, we are some of the worst idol worshipers in the world. And yet you've called us to be a light, uh, to shine bright for those who don't know you. It's so encouraged, encouraging to hear Earlier tonight, Catherine Dunaway uh, profess you. Um, we want to see more of that, and we want you to use us in capacities to, to change not only our city, but our nation, our families, and the rest of the world. Give us the wisdom and the strength to do that, Lord. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.
really enjoyed it tonight. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you around. Good night.